Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. Let's bring in Peter Schaffer, shall we? RBC Capital Markets, global markets strategist, the head of US GDP in around about 90 minutes time, Peter. What are you looking for from the US economy this morning? Morning, guys. Well, first of all, it's good to see that you're all having fun here. Um, well, if I if we look at the number, so the, the number overall is obviously not going to be super strong. I mean, we are slightly ahead of consensus. Our number, uh, our estimate is um, 2.0, whether the market is looking for 1.8. But I think that's not really the point. The point is, if you look underneath the bonnet, um, what what are we getting there? Um, and uh, our guys um, over there in New York and your part of the world, um, when, when they when they look under it, and um, what they say, well, what really coming out, what's likely going to come out, is that the the Consumer remains strong, and that has been the bulwark of uh, U.S. growth. And if the rest, particularly um, if uh, inventories are um, causing some of the weakness uh, that you potentially see, that's not so bad. So as long as the consumer stays strong, that's really one of the key things here. Yeah. Peter, does it change anything for the Federal Reserve next week? Probably not. I mean, you know, it's 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 not necessarily a question of whether or not the economic backdrop really requires in the here and now a rate cut. They have. I wouldn't say nailed their colors to the mast, but it seems like a very, very um, high probability that we'll get a 25 basis points rate cut. Well, sort of on the same theme, what would we have to see with respect to an upside surprise to make the Federal Reserve question their current approach to cutting rates? Well, you know, I would say probably more of the same and uh, probably even stronger numbers than we currently had. But if you if you sort of really just look in the numbers that are coming out, um, then I think the, 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 the here and now doesn't justify a rate cut in the first place. So what really is driving it, I we think, um, is first of all, is the is the potential um, risk down the road. So if, if the assessments of any kind of future developments are changing to the upside, if any of the sort of um, looming risk on the horizon go away, I think that's probably what the Fed would be um, really looking for. So going forward, I'm trying to understand actually the state of the U.S. economy right now, given the fact that we have gotten some weaker than expected data. But on the whole, you said, uh, as you pointed out, the numbers have been pretty good. Where do you think we are? I mean, do you think that there is a material slowdown in the U.S. economy that the Fed is rightly recognizing? Well, look, first of all, if I, you know, I, I don't want to sort of just pull it away from um, only the U.S. I think it's the same pretty much everywhere. What you had is that the, the strength of most of the Western economies has been that virtuous circle between hiring on the one hand, consumption on the other. So you put people in, people in employment, they have money in their pockets and they spend it. And that has particularly predominant in the U.S. And obviously you have a very strong uh, labor market over there. On the other hand, however, what has been lacking is investment on the one hand um, and Certainly, in parts of the economy, the trade picture is making it worse. That's particularly true over here in Europe on the manufacturing side, but you also see it in the forward-looking indicators in the U.S. And I think that's sort of the fear that is not necessarily what has been making us strong over the last couple of years, is the question of whether there is something on the horizon that might push us down into the future and eventually sort of eat away at sort of that, that key pillar that I was just mentioning that has been driving our growth rates, you know, for the last couple of years. Really. So we're waiting for Chairman Powell next week. President Draghi, seven years to the day since that bumblebee speech back in London and the pledge to do whatever it takes to preserve the euro, Peter. Your thoughts, now the dust has settled after yesterday's news conference. 
If I may say, um, already after the Sintra speech, uh, just because you made that reference to the whatever it takes, we sent a research report out saying this was whatever it takes 2.0. Um, and I think yesterday, in my mind, the market reaction was um, slightly disappointed, of course. Um, but I think the market is missing a, missing a trick here. When you look at what the ECB has now inserted into their key statement, which was a reference to inflation and inflation expectation, and essentially, again, to, whatever it, uh, to do whatever it takes to get inflation back. And particularly, they made this reference to the symmetry of their inflation target. So essentially, if inflation has been below the target for a while, it can well stay above the target for quite a while. Um, I think this is a substantial step for the ECB to tell markets, guys, we will stay at extremely low levels or even lower as long as necessary for inflation to come up. So therefore, in my mind, um, the market should not be selling off here, and particularly not the forwards. The forwards should be coming down. The curve should be flatter. So, Peter, this is important, and it's a point of confusion for a lot of people. The mandate for the ECB, the actual mandate is price stability, but the governing council right. defines the mandate, and they last define the mandate a long, long time ago. So this is a almost a re-clarification of a definition or in fact a fresh clarification of how they defined price stability, Peter. What does it mean for policy then? What do they do now they've changed that? Now they've clarified what they th- now think the definition of price stability is? Well, first of all, I, I, I want to stress that they haven't yet changed it. Um, I mean, they're, you know, or they haven't redefined it. And what they're saying is that they're really working on this um, and that they, the, um, and apparently there's some stories out there that they have been presented with different ways of, uh, of, of looking at inflation and, and these type of things. But I expect that as time progresses, we'll get a much, much firmer definition of this. But what, what seems to be very clear is that when you look at the past, and we've just put this in a research note yesterday and um, post the ECB, when you look at the past, let's say 10 years, there's at least three occasions when inflation was above 2%, Although there were some trouble outside, um, um, ahead, the ECB hiked. That was before the crisis in 2008. That was before the European crisis in 2011. And most recently when they adopted it in a uh, hiking bias. I think the ECB wants to pull the rug out from under that and will tell markets, do not think that we will do this again if we are not anywhere close to a medium-term 2% level we will not hike. And I think this is a very, very strong message. If, if I may say, uh, even a sort of a little bit tongue-in-cheek, the ECB was modelled after the Bundesbank. Um, I think they really want to drive the Bundesbank out of the ECB. So um, there's a quote that's been misattributed to Albert Einstein many times. The definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. And that sticks out in my mind as we hear that the ECB is going to drop the deposit rate even lower and engage in further asset purchases in hope of igniting inflation. Is this a faulty premise? Do negative rates actually hinder the ability for inflation to take off? Well, I, I, first of all, I don't think so. That's the very short answer, and I'll give you more meat to the bone. But secondly, I think you're starting from a, um, if I may say so, and no offense here, I, I think you're starting from um, a, a wrong point of view. Because what you're saying is what the ECB has done has not delivered what they wanted to achieve, which is getting inflation um, towards 2% again. But then you don't know what the counterfactual is. Where would inflation be if they hadn't moved uh, interest rates to these levels? And I would claim uh, it would probably be even lower than where it is 
is currently. So, and that's the point that Draghi was making yesterday to more or less the same question as well. Um, so I think, and he thinks, and the ECB thinks, that they have been fairly successful. They just have not been successful enough. Um, in fact, when you then, going back to your original question, when you look at some of the um, research that the ECB has put out, um, and they have the best data on this, they very clearly demonstrate that in an environment of very low inflation, particularly coupled with relatively large sums of reserves out there, so QE that's been printed, um, that lending of banks to corporates increases. And that's exactly what they want. Hey, Peter, great to catch up with you to get your thoughts. Peter Shafrick there of RBC Capital Markets, global market strategist. Lisa, at the end of the day, in the short term at least, it doesn't matter whether you and I or Peter thinks this will work. What matters is whether the ECB thinks it will work because if they believe their tools are effective, they'll deploy them. Yes. And ultimately, that's what's going to happen in September. Now the dust has settled after yesterday, I think we can focus on September and try and work out what's about to come down from the ECB, the size and scope of QE if they deliver, and whether we finally get some tearing to go well, along with that lower rate cut. And I think that that's the key thing, is what is going to be uh, sort of the amelioration for the banks to the charge that they are paying on their deposits. And I think that may be uh, a really key factor here. I'm overwhelmed by the guest appearances on this program this morning. First, Lisa Bravitz. Now, Paul Sweeney joining us early. How many early wake-up calls is this in the last week, Paul? Exactly. This is not in my contract. I'm going to have to talk to somebody. This must mean it's <laughs> tech earnings week. And yes. Amazon came out after the close, the stock down by a little more than 1%. Have they flicked the switch the other way again, Paul? You know, it's a little bit. I think it's just going to be a short-term thing. They're ramping up their expenses to, uh, you know, kind of get to this one-day delivery. It's getting, you know, so competitive in terms of uh, this e-commerce business. So, they're, you know, they, they started this whole thing kind of with this, you know, I'll get you the, the package in two or three days. Now it's one day. Uh, but no matter what it is, it costs a lot of money. So they were ramping up about $800 million in expenses just to get that one-day uh, delivery for a lot of markets and a lot of products. And that's uh, that impacted their uh, EPS and their operating profit. It, but the, the revenue came in uh, really strong once again. You know, it's interesting. Uh, shares down a little bit more than a percent ahead of the U.S. Open. So not a huge move uh, that we're seeing. But is Amazon still uh, going to be an e-commerce company in five years? Or is it going to be a, a cloud computing, logistics, and advertising company? <laughs> I think it's going to be all of the above. Um, you know, they, you're right. They're really investing in some of these, you know, non-retail businesses. And, of course, the big profit driver for this company is Amazon Web Services. It has a, you know, double-digit operating profit margin versus the core retail business which is barely profitable um, which we know uh, so th the web is you know a big big driver for them they're number one in the market but it's very competitive out there Microsoft is out there uh, Google is out there and some other tech companies uh, but the advertising business is just starting to ramp up for them and it's a question of whether how big they want that business to get uh, but I'll tell you advertisers would love to have a third digital marketplace in the market um, aside from Facebook and Google so the advertising business the web business um, very profitable businesses fast-growing businesses for them and that drives profits and this comp this is a company that hasn't had much profits to show for over the last decade or so so investors like the profit story so once they turn the tables as you mentioned Jonathan a little bit on the expenses uh, just kind of reminds people oh this is a company that can spend money too and that's where the focus has been uh, ever since the numbers dropped after the close yesterday just AWS, just a word on AWS if you can. Since they first started breaking out these numbers, we've had revenue growth of north of 40%, north yep. of 40%, north of 40%. 
Yesterday, it dropped below that number. Yeah. Should we be looking at that a little bit more carefully, a little bit more closely? I think so. Well, I mean, I think the long-term trend for uh, cloud revenue growth remains very strong. We saw good numbers out of Microsoft. Um, and, you know, we saw some good numbers, uh, although Google doesn't really break it out that clearly out of Google. So we know cloud, uh, aver- uh, cloud revenue is growing pretty substantially. That's a big part of the tech stack right now. So, and, and of course, Amazon has the leading play there. So, um, but the revenue did and that and that definitely spooked investors because uh, again that's the big profit driver for this company but uh, I think they're going to continue to invest in the cloud business because uh, that's where they're spending a lot of money on servers and all that type type of stuff I have to wonder about regulatory pressures yeah. and I have to wonder what they're doing how they're positioning themselves ahead of what will be an increasingly contentious period of time for big tech as the 2020 elections heat up. Yeah, exactly, and that's something that Google, Facebook, Apple, all these big tech companies have to deal with. Um, Because as we know, the US has generally taken a very light touch to uh, big technology, Silicon Valley over the last uh, 20, 30 years, but that seems to be changing. uh, And and, and the companies know it, because they're stepping up their lobbying efforts. Are they saying anything about it? They're saying saying that they're working with regulators. They, you know, you know, they're looking for smart regulation of this industry. I think uh, Mark Zuckerberg at Facebook is probably the most out in front because quite frankly, Facebook is probably the most at risk here because it's personal, it's it's people's personal data and privacy. And I think they are kind of the poster child for what's gonna happen going forward in terms of tech regulation. Amazon probably, probably to a much lesser extent, I think. Headline of the week though, goes to perhaps Treasury Secretary yep. Steven Mnuchin. Amazon, has destroyed U.S. retail. Using the word destroyed, I mean, this was really powerful stuff. And then you sort of put the headline to one side and try and work out, well, what does this really mean for this company? What does it mean? You know, I don't know. I think that, I, I, you know, I think most investors, it didn't really impact the stock. People kind of thought it was just political rhetoric. Um, but the fact is e-commerce is destroying Main Street retail. And it's just consumer behavior. What do consumers want? They, You know, now with the internet, you can actually order stuff online and have it delivered. And you don't necessarily need to go to the mall or to the local Main Street to get to the store. I think that's just the way the, yeah. you know, the business has evolved. And of course, Amazon is the 800 pound gorilla. So they're gonna bear, bear the brunt here. Paul Sweeney, we can hash this out uh, pretty soon. In two yes. hours, you and I can debate this. But I've gotta say, Paul Sweeney, Bloomberg uh, radio anchor, joining us here. I've got to say, this is very controversial, John, because people say Amazon killed mom and pop retail. But there are a lot of questions about the ability to adjust to an internet age, the interference with uh, some of these uh, firms that had these companies incur a lot of leverage and their ability to spend and adapt to the new environment. I'm just saying it's not so simple. Well, in reality, Walmart killed Main Street. That's what happened. And that was 30, 40 years Mic ago. Mic drop. Yep. Paul Sweeney, yep. great to catch up with you, as always. Well, let's bring in David Rosenberg, shall we? Gluskin Chef, Chief Economist. David, always great to get your insight. Your first take on the GDP print, please. Well, it's a uh, obviously um, uh, above expected and, uh, you know, I think has the Fed leaning towards 25 as opposed to uh, 50 basis points. I think when you look at the components, uh, I mean, as stated, uh, it was led by uh, the big bounce in consumer spending at 4.3. But remember, the previous two quarters, uh, consumer spending growth had a one-handle. So this is, I think, a temporary spurt of growth in consumer spending after really two quarters of of almost stagnation. Uh, What really catches my eye, though, that people should recognize 
uh, and why I might be buying treasuries here on the sell-off uh, is business spending um, contracted at a 5.5% annual rate, uh, housing negative 1.5, uh, exports negative 5.2. So when you almost look at this on a diffusion basis uh, beyond the consumer, a lot of the components are pretty soft. Although if you think about business spending, how much is that going uh, to lag behind consumer spending and will eventually pick up as the consumer remains strong? Well, uh, I guess that you're asking me, um, you know, who's wagging the tail? Uh, And so is it a case where businesses are going to start to invest more because we had um, a spurt of consumer spending growth after two soft quarters? Uh, Or is uh, business sector going to be curtailing their hirings because if they're cutting back on CapEx, employment's not far behind. And if employment ends up following what capital spending is doing, uh, you're not seeing a a forehandle on consumption growth again anytime soon. David, these are really important points. And I think just more broadly, globally right now, something people are grappling with is the manufacturing recession and whether it begins or has already started to bleed into services. David, are you identifying any spots where you see that happening already? Well, a couple of things. I think that, um, you know, you are seeing uh, out of the anecdotal or the um, diffusion indices, there's no question that service sector activity uh, globally uh, and even in the U.S. is slowing down. It's not contracting. But remember that the service sector, I mean, a lot of the service sector is education and health services. They're not really that cyclical. Uh, the goods producing sector manufacturing is cyclical. Ultimately, uh, cyclical services do service, um, you know, the, uh, the goods producers. Uh, <laughs> they're the leading indicator. Um, but people always talk about, well, don't worry so much about the service sector. It's not contracting. Well, it's very difficult to get services contracting because so much of it uh, has very little uh, correlation with the overall business cycle. Uh, the one thing that, has, that had, did catch my eye, by the way, uh, and I know that we're talking about really a coincidence lagging indicator called last quarter's GDP, but I did notice that when you're taking a look at um, small business employment out of the ADP data, it's been negative two months in a row. And so if you want to drive looking through the front window instead of the rearview mirror, which everybody will talk about the rearview mirror today, which is last quarter's GDP, one of the best leading indicators for the economy is small business employment. Small businesses have the flexibility flexibility to lay off people much quicker than big companies do. And that's why ADP, I think, is slowing down much faster than non-farm payrolls. But to me, if you're asking me, what is the canary in the coal mine right now? Small business employment, by the way, including the service sector, is slowing down precipitously. And that's a leading indicator. So, David, this is really important. So I believe in the ADP report, this is businesses smaller than 49 employees. Is that right? Do you see that bleeding up into bigger companies then? It's a great leading indicator. So the answer is yes. You know, the big... uh, the big mega cap companies, <laughs> it's hard for them to let people go. I mean, they'll package them out, they'll let them go, but the big companies operate with the lag. The small companies can let you go tomorrow, um, so they're much more flexible. You take a look historically, great leading indicator small business employment. I actually think that it's the CapEx recession that is going to lead the softening in consumer spending. I'm not going to say consumer spending goes negative, but I would not be superimposing the 4% growth in consumer spending spending this quarter into the future. CapEx will lead the consumer, not the other way around. Hey, David, we've really got to spend a little bit more time on this and look forward to having you in the studio quite soon. David Rosenberg there, Gluskin Chef, Chief Economist, joining us to react to a GDP print here in the United States. The debate continues ahead of a Federal Reserve decision next week. 
T-Mobile Sprint deal, the least surprising deal to ever uh, possibly get approved by the DOJ, which could come as soon as today. Yesterday, we were thinking it would come uh, after close, perhaps, or later in the afternoon. Uh, now it's gotten pushed back. Joining us, we are so lucky to have Tara LaChapelle. She is a Bloomberg Opinion columnist, uh, and she has incredible insights, particularly in this space. And I'm just wondering, first of all, what we're expecting the DOJ, the Department of Justice deal, to look like to enable T-Mobile and Sprint to finally complete the very long-awaited marriage. Finally. It's been years of covering this deal, so it will be very nice to finally get an announcement. Uh, What we think the structure of the divestiture deal is going to be is T-Mobile will be able to buy Sprint and they will sell off likely Boost Mobile, which is a prepaid service, so sort of a pay-as-you-go phone business that caters to lower-income Americans. And they'll all have, also have to sell some Spectrum licenses, which are very valuable uh, to Dish Network. So Dish Network, the satellite TV provider, will likely be acquiring all these assets. And that's what we're expecting. Um, it'll be a small number of subscribers that they're taking on. But I think the goal from the DOJ's perspective is to lay the groundwork so that there can be this fourth competitor that kind of fills the space that Sprint is going to leave behind. Whether that's how it ends up, we'll see. I don't know that Dish can actually rise to that occasion, but that at least seems to be the parameters of the deal from what we hear. So I guess that if you look at market reactions to the expectation here, it seems like investors say, okay, this will be enough to mollify the Department of Justice, but it will not be enough to actually curtail the competitive advantage for T-Mobile and Sprint to get together. Is that your interpretation as well? Exactly. If you look at the reaction, uh, Dish investors, I think, are a little bit disappointed by this. I think they were hoping that Dish would, A, partner with a giant tech company with deep pockets, and B, maybe even just sell out and sell their spectrum, since Dish already has some of its own and it's worth billions of dollars. So the fact that they're going to go through this very costly, time-consuming process of building their own network and having to try to compete with these three other carriers, T-Mobile, Verizon, and AT&T, it's going to be very challenging because Dish is not known nationwide for being a wireless server because they don't do service providers. They don't do that. So it's going to be a big sort of teaching experience to try to market to the country, hey, we also sell wireless service. Which brings us to a really interesting point that you raised incredibly uh, insightfully in a column that you recently wrote, looking at why there is so much focus on breaking up big tech and regulating big tech And there doesn't seem to be any attention right now at the size of the conglomerates in the wireless space. So why? I know I'm asking that too. I mean, it's very interesting that the Justice Department's antitrust division, led by Megan Delrahim, is very focused on Google, Facebook, Amazon, Apple, the power that they have, and whether that's harming consumers. And I think that's a worthy review that they're doing. However, it, it doesn't really say that they're looking out for consumers if they're going to turn around and approve this T-Mobile Sprint deal as structured with these tiny divestitures. I think that this deal could be just as harmful to consumers and that more should have been done to, to, to make it so that they can't this can't result in greater pricing power, a change to the industry in which consumers end up paying more money and getting uh, less service, less innovation. Although you could make the argument that if you have a behemoth, if you've got three behemoths now, uh, that they are able to invest more in the 5G infrastructure, they'll have more cash, and they'll be able to provide better service, and they'll continue to compete with each other. It's possible. I mean, I think you know what T-Mobile and Sprint are saying is Sprint was such a weak player, but they have this really valuable spectrum. So if T-Mobile has access to that, they can kind of build this network faster, the 5G sort of future of wireless service. And 
And I think there's some truth to that, but I also think that T-Mobile and Sprint by having the two of them competing with one another is what kept prices down the last few years. And that's why the industry has struggled so hard to um, have anything in the way of profit growth off of consumers. So I think by putting them together and arguing that Dish is somehow going to keep that balance, I don't know that that's completely honest because I think T-Mobile wouldn't do this deal if that were the case. And just to that point, I'm looking right now, for example, at AT&T shares year to date up uh, more than 24%. And you're seeing similar uh, action in Verizon. And so it does raise a question. This ends up benefiting the other big guys because there isn't the race to the bottom with uh, Sprint and T-Mobile. I mean, the biggest indicator of whether this deal is going to hurt consumers and benefit the industry's pricing power is AT&T and Verizon stock prices. I mean, they rise every time that there was some sort of signal that this deal will go through. And any time that it looked like the deal might get blocked or was running into interference, that these stock prices would fall. So I think that tells you right there what the industry is expecting from this. What would you say to people who argued that Sprint would ultimately be, I don't want to say unsustainable, uh, but certainly a poor competitor in the long run should it have remained independent or should should it remain independent? It's it's weak and getting weaker, and I think that's true. Um, Sprint's business is kind of a mess, and they have a ton of debt. However, they're backed by Masasone, the Japanese billionaire and SoftBank group. So I think at the end of the day, we're not really, you know, bailing out a company that was going to go away anytime soon. I think it's just sort of helping him get out of an investment that really wasn't working out so well. And now he's going to own a piece of this combined company that's going to be on much healthier footing. Although you could make an argument that this race to the bottom was unsustainable for for Sprint, right? I mean, T-Mobile as well, perhaps, and mm-hmm. that they were just winning and they were in a position of power because of the debt profile of Sprint and a whole bunch of other sort of structural issues. But I do have to wonder, you know, to the DOJ's defense and to the defense of regulators that are not stepping in and saying, you know, hey, this is going to be terrible for the consumer. What was the likelihood that this kind of price war could continue indefinitely at a time when they do need to make so many investments in 5G? It's true. It probably couldn't have continued much longer. I mean, Sprint a year ago was offering free service to anyone from Verizon who switched to Sprint. And so I think that that tells you, you know, how desperate they were. But I still think, you know, we weren't at the point where, and the companies themselves aren't making the argument that this is a failing business. So, and and if you listen to their earnings calls, I mean, they're still talking optimistically about it. So I think if that's the message they're telling their investors, I mean, regulators have to take that seriously, too. And I don't think that this is a case if T-Mobile doesn't buy Sprint, Sprint disappears. If Sprint really got cheap enough, someone else would probably try to buy them. Okay, so then this raises another question, and and you sort of talked about perhaps big tech coming in and buying uh, one of the networks. Is there any talk of big tech getting involved here and trying to offer some sort of competing wireless entity eventually, uh, especially if there are only three big behemoths. I mean, right now it's mostly rumor, but I think, you know, Dish Network, there's always been rumors swirling around them that they need a partner to build a wireless network and they are sitting on all this spectrum. So I think there is potential for someone to partner with them and do something with the spectrum and turn it into some sort of wireless network. Dish has focused on talking about internet of things as opposed to sort of consumer wireless service. Um, so. There is that possibility, but I and, and there's also Charter and Comcast, which are reselling wireless service using Verizon's network. But right now, I mean, I think for a while, it's just going to be these three main carriers. Which big tech company would want to have this sort of mess on their hands? I mean, I, I say like, on one hand, it's, it's incredible uh, in terms of the demand and the sort of built-in demand. Yeah. On the other hand, there is a huge capital investment that needs to be made continuously, as well as regulatory pressure because it's sort of skirting the line with utilities. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of just technological uh, 
issues there too because 5G service is going to re- uh, require different bands of spectrum which travel dis- different distances and need different things in order for the connections to work. So it's very uh, costly. It's it's a very difficult process. Um, Google and Amazon are names that come up whenever Dish's name is in the mix. But again, it's hard to tell whether that's coming from Dish or coming from the tech companies themselves. They tend to deny this. So just uh, to tie this all together, who do you think is the big winner from the likely approval of the Sprint T-Mobile deal? Absolutely, Masasone of SoftBank, the controlling shareholder of Sprint. Because he gets to be bailed out of this situation, which otherwise could have gotten really ugly. Yes, because he would have had to put up more capital to keep Sprint going. And I think that, you know, there's there's not much of an optimistic case around Sprint right now. So I think they're a big winner. And then T-Mobile shareholders, likely there's going to be a lot of synergies in this. They'll see their profit margins go up. I mean, there's going to be a lot of benefits for them. But the industry as a whole, you can tell by their share prices. Everybody's everybody's a winner, except perhaps, as Tara LaChapelle uh, suggests, perhaps the consumer might not be. Tara LaChapelle, Bloomberg Opinion columnist. Thank you. That was terrific. Uh, joining us here, you can always read Bloomberg Opinion columns at Bloomberg.com slash opinion or on the term. O-P-I-N. Go. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.